Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always wonderful to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Today is a bit of a cooler Wednesday afternoon after this heat wave here in Johannesburg and we hope we'll get some rain today. Today is the 23rd day of the month of Kislev according to the Hebrew calendar. Um, it is the 6th of December as we all know and uh, the 23rd of Kislev is significant because on this day in the year 1348, Amongst the devastating Black Plague, which eventually killed 25 million Europeans, a government official in Switzerland announced that Jews, under torture, had confessed to the poisoning of wells in the Rhine Valley as part of an international Jewish conspiracy. The report was readily accepted by nobles who resented the Jews as economic competitors and whom they were indebted for loans. Thus began a year of terror which saw the destruction of most of the Jewish communities in the region and thousands of Jews were burned alive. So remember on this day, the 23rd of Kislev, 1348, where the Jews were falsely accused as being the perpetrators behind the Black Plague that killed so many millions in Europe. And we see these false accusations against Jews are not a new thing but they not something of the past either. And we see so many false accusations today in our times against the Jewish people, against um, Israel, against the Israeli army, uh, which are as ridiculous and as false as this claim that we were the cause of the Black Plague. Um, and if one just is interested in objectivity and truth and trying to get behind what really is going on, it's not difficult to see that these accusations are completely unfounded unfounded and false. Yet just like the noblemen um, those centuries ago readily accepted these claims, so too these this slander and this these uh, terrible, ghastly accusations against the Jewish people, so too does the media of today, the mainstream media very readily accepts this narrative and these claims that Jews are perpetrating genocide and are uh, indiscriminately murdering civilians. That is completely false. And anybody who is interested in truth will see that Israel, after being attacked so brutally and so viciously on October the 7th, has no choice but to destroy Hamas. If Israel doesn't destroy Hamas, so that is an existential, existential threat to the future of every single Jew, all 8 million Jews in the land of Israel, because it shows weakness of the um, facing such provocation, the, the most severe prov provocation possible. Israel has to be strong and defend itself. Otherwise, it just emboldens our enemies, and they will attack us again. As Hamas has openly said, they, um, the October 7th was just the first of many attacks against Israel. And so Israel has to destroy Hamas, has to be strong. And Israel does so in the most measured way possible. 
There's no more humane army in the history of the world than Tsar, than Israeli security forces, who warn the civilians. Firstly, they told the civilians, get out of northern Gaza because we are going to, we're coming in to destroy all of the infrastructure of Hamas and all of their tunnels. And Hamas is preventing the civilians from leaving. So that's the first, um, crime, the, against humanity, that war crime that Hamas is, is committing. And secondly, Hamas deliberately hides behind civilians and places their strongholds and their forces in schools, in hospitals, in uh, kindergartens. So that's another crime against humanity that Hamas commits. Yet Israel's the one that's accused. It's absolutely bizarre and absurd that we are the ones that are accused of brutality and of acts of crimes against humanity, where is, where is Hamas or the perpetrators? And, uh, and they, they need to be brought to task on this. And of course Israel has every right to defend itself and has every right to destroy Hamas because of the provocations and the war that Hamas declared on us on October the 7th. And any civilian that gets hurt is Hamas's fault. It's Hamas who's responsible for it. Um, the famous uh, uh, analogy is if somebody goes into a bank and holds up the bank and stands behind civilians in the bank and the police shoot the perpetrators, but civilians get hit. The police are not held accountable for that in law, in, in any legal system in the world. It's the fault of the criminals and of the robbers that civilians die. It's the same thing here for sure. It's entirely Hamas's fault. Hamas cares much less about Palestinian civilians than Israel does. Israel warns them. Israel sends SMSs. Israel sends pamphlets. Israel announces that they're coming into this area and they're bombing this area. They're losing the element of surprise and they're losing militarily so much by doing so because Israel does not want to harm civilians. And unfortunately, in the process, civilians do get harmed, which is a great tragedy, which is not Israel's goal at all which is not within the interests of Israel at all. It's within the interests of Hamas that civilians get killed so that the news stations and the journalists around the world can report that Israel has murdered these civilians. And that sends the Muslim world into a rage and causes great up, uh, unrest and uprisings around the world against Israel. That's very much part of the tactics and of the plan of Hamas, which works very well. We've seen how well it works all over the world. We've seen campuses across the globe, in, in Europe, in particularly in the United States, where they take up that cause. But it is a completely false narrative. And Israel are not the perpetrators over here. Hamas are the perpetrators. And uh, therefore, um, these lies that have been thrown at the Jewish people for centuries continue to, to uh, be accepted by the anti-Semitic world and are presented in a very false and a very biased way. Okay, so let's move on now. to. So today is the 23rd of Kislev, um, and tomorrow night is the 25th of Kislev. 25th of Kislev is the festival of Hanukkah. So we're going to talk about what Hanukkah is, what the, the very important lessons we learn from Hanukkah. They are very valuable and apply to us today. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM.
So as we mentioned, the great and beautiful festival of Hanukkah begins tomorrow night. So today is the 23rd of Kislev and tomorrow tonight and tomorrow the 24th of Kislev. And then tomorrow night from sunset is the 25th of Kislev. And 25th of Kislev is the beginning of the festival of Hanukkah. So let's discuss a little bit about Hanukkah and the unbelievable and beautiful festival that we should uh, all be celebrating as Jews. Hanukkah um, took place in the land of Israel in the year 165 before the Common Era. We had Alexander the Great. He was the great conqueror of the civilized world. Um, Alexander was uh, born in 356 before the Common Era, and he died in 323 of the Common Era. Um, very young man, wasn't he? he? He did not live very long, but in those short years, he conquered the world. He succeeded his father, who was Philip II, to the throne. In uh, was he was known as Alexander, king of Macedonia, Macedon in in Hebrew, um, and he at the age of twenty and three hundred thirty six before the Common Era, um, he embarked on a aggressive military campaign, conquered most of the world, including the large parts of the Middle East, uh, including the land of Israel, and of course it was the time of the Second Temple, and the Second Temple was was operating, was running, and uh, the Greeks occupied then the land and Israel, like many of the other lands that they conquered, became um, one of the colonies that was occupied. Alexander, surprisingly, was not um, particularly vicious and harsh to the Jews in Israel, uh, which was unlike most of the areas that he conquered and colonized. Uh, in the ancient world, when foreign armies entered into your country, it was completely brutal. And they took the women and children, they murdered most of them, and they raped most of them, and they took all of the wealth. And it was very, very uh, brutal, the rule of a foreign con conqueror. However, the exception was Israel. Alexander, had, he, he went easy on the Jews in Israel and allowed them still to operate the temple and still to live and practice as Jews. Alexander died in the year 323 before the Common Era. And quite soon after his death, the kingdom, this great empire that he controlled, split into two. You know, when you have such a powerful figure who rules the empire, when they die, so others take over, and usually there's a lot of conflict within the kingdom. And that's exactly what happened. You had a northern king kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in the year 200, King Antiochus III um, took over the southern kingdom and defeated King Ptolemy, who was in the south, and he therefore uh, controlled the land also then. So, in other words, Israel was controlled by the southern kingdom up until then, uh, King Ptolemy, uh, but the northern kingdom uh, conquered the southern kingdom in the year 200 before the Common Era. And uh, in the year 175, Antiochus IV took over from his father, and he was very anti-Semitic, and he saw the Jewish way of life as a threat to Greek culture, to the Greek um, view of the world, and he began to persecute the Jews in from the year 175 before the Common Era, and his persecutions included Jews weren't allowed to study Torah, 
Jews were not allowed to observe mitzvahs um, and uh, fulfill the commandments of God. And the Jewish women were violated by the Greek soldiers and by the Greek generals. And it became absolutely untenable for the Jews at that time. And the Jews decided, a very small group of them, decided to stand up against the Greeks and against this severe oppression. And they waged a guerrilla war against the Greeks. Now, remember, the Greeks were the superpower of the day, and they were the most powerful army the world had ever seen. Um, they mobilized troops from all over their massive kingdom, and the the numbers and the technology, military technology that they had, completely destroyed any country that was brave enough to stand up against them. Um, but the this family, the family of Metisiyahu, who was actually the Kohen Gadol, he and his five sons said, we have no choice but to stand up for ourselves and to stand up for our lives. We are being destroyed spiritually. And our purpose as Jews is to keep the mitzvahs, is to learn Torah, is to be observant of God's commandments. And um, therefore, we cannot allow this to happen. And so they stood up against the Greeks. And uh, Metisiao had five sons. His sons were Shimon and Yohanan, Eliezer, Yohanan, and Yehuda. And under the leadership of Metisiao and his five sons, they began to um, engage in this guerrilla warfare against the Greeks. And it uh, at first was very rough going. And there was such a small number against such a powerful Greek army. But slowly but surely they built up momentum and they had one victory after another. And uh, as a result of their success, they were able to mobilize more Jewish soldiers. And these guys were not, they were not trained as soldiers. They were Talmidei Chachamim. They were rabbis. They were Kohanim who served in the Beis HaMikdash. Um, but they had to learn how to wage war, and they were very selective in their targets. Um, it reminds me a lot of the Vietnam War, the, the way the Viet Cong and the uh, NVA, North Vietnamese Army, fought against the Americans in Vietnam in the late 1960s, early 1970s. It was a similar kind of thing. It was guerrilla warfare. They only uh, attacked their enemy when the odds were in their favor, when they had the high ground, when they were able to defeat them. Um, from, you know, the perspective of those particular individual battles. And they, therefore, um, were very successful because if they took them on head-on, they would be crushed by the military might of their enemy. And so it was guerrilla warfare to the T. Um, and uh, just as the uh, Viet Cong were very successful against the Americans, so too the Hashmonaim um, or the Maccabees, uh, were very successful against the Greeks. And uh, as the war waged on and, and went on, so one battle after the other, there was a battle of attrition, and they were able to defeat the Greeks whenever they showed themselves to them. The Greeks couldn't find them because they hid in the caves and they hid in the countryside. And eventually it was no longer worthwhile for the Greek army to be occupying uh, the land of Israel. And... Uh, and therefore they decided that, you know, this is just such a pain. This is just such a imposition. This is such a thorn in our sides that we will leave. And so incredibly and miraculously, 
they were able to defeat this military superpower and they were able to push the Greeks out of the land of Israel and they were able to then rededicate the temple and because uh, the temple had by that time been destroyed by the Greeks, been ransacked and being def- and had been defiled and they were able to rededicate the temple. Um, when they arrived back at the Harabais at the temple, so all of the oil uh, that was used, it was a holy oil, there was tahor, there were law- laws of tuman tar of purity and impurity, all of the oil had been destroyed, and they were able to find one pach of shemen, one jar of oil, which still had the seal of the Kongadul, which meant that it was tahor. This oil could be used to light the menorah, they lit the menorah, and, the, and it took them another seven days to um, produce pure oil, pure olive oil, to continue lighting the menorah. And this jar that had sufficient oil to burn for one day, burned for seven days. And so the sages established a festival that would celebrate these tremendous miracles that took place at that time. Um, and so that is the festival of Hanukkah, that we celebrate the amazing miracles that took place back then, the miracles of the war and defeating this powerful army, the miracles of the oil, of finding this jar of oil, single jar of oil that survived, and the miracle of the oil burning for eight days. And so the Gomorrah and Shabbos says that these days have been set aside for um, Shevach V'chodah, um, for Thanks and praise of Hashem. To thank Hashem and to praise God for these great miracles that took place back then. And it was instituted that for all future generations, um, from that year of 165 before the common era, that all Jews on these days that the temple was rededicated should light a menorah, should light a Hanukkah, our own menorah, we light one on the first day and we add one each day as we go to remember these great and awesome miracles that took place in those days. It is worth mentioning that at that time there were no Palestinians in Israel. There was no such a thing as a Palestinians. The Plishtim, who were a uh, people who were in the land when you were sure first entered the land, had disappeared, had dissolved. They were no longer around. And it was only the Jewish people in the land of Israel and these conquerors that came in was only much later when the Ottoman Empire conquered the Jewish people in the year 1519, well, uh, came into the land as part of their conquests across Europe and the Middle East, that um, some of these Bedouin tribes came into the land, and only much later did more people enter into the land from the uh, from the Arabian Peninsula, and those who are those are the Palestinians of today. So the indigenous people of Israel are the Jewish people. We've been there for more than 3,000 years. We were there at the times when the Babylonians came in and conquered us, when the Persians came in to conquer the land. And then we had our independence and our temples, the first temple, the second temple. The Greeks came in. We pushed them out at the time of Hanukkah. The Romans then came in and destroyed the temple. But we always had Jews in the land of Israel. So to claim that it's a Muslim land, Islam hadn't even been invented. Islam only came around seven centuries after Hanukkah, after the victories of Hanukkah. So Islam didn't even exist. There were no people of uh, the, today's Arabs that are in the land of Israel. There was no, none of their descendants were there at that time. They only came in much, much later, as I mentioned. And so to claim that it's a, 
a, a land that the Jews stole from the Muslims is absolutely preposterous. It's, it's a, a complete fal- falsification of history. And uh, there always has been a Jewish land, and please God will always be the Jewish land. It's the land that was promised to Abraham by God and belongs to the Jewish people. Um, and so the Jews uh, succeeded in pushing out the Greeks and in rededicating the temple, and, the, and we therefore have this wonderful festival of Hanukkah where we celebrate those miracles and the victory of the Hashmonaim against the Greeks. So let's discuss a little bit about the symbolism of Hanukkah, what it actually represents. Uh, there are many, many beautiful messages and, uh, and lessons to be learned from Hanukkah. I'm just going to share with you one. And after we've done that, let's go through some of the halachas, some of the halachic requirements that all of us should be following in celebration of this festival. So firstly, the Gemara, there's a Gemara in Shabbos that discusses Hanukkah. It says, my Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? And it tells us the story of what happened, how the Greeks made it impossible for Jews to practice our religion, and they persecuted us very severely. Um, and uh, the way the Hashwanaim um, stood up and fought against them, the Gemara describes it, and how they came to the temple, they found the one jar burned for eight days. And they said, therefore, these days were set up for all future generations, for halal vohoda, for praise and thanks to Hashem. The Sfas Emes says, the great holy Sfas Emes, who was the great Hasidic Rebbe and the uh, Rebbe of the Gera Hasidim, he says that in order to engage in halal vohoda, a person has to rise above our um, interaction with, our, our obsession of being in the physical world. When we completely preoccupied with our physical existence, with our physical desires, with our material functioning in this world, so then we're not able to truly thank Hashem and appreciate everything that Hashem does for us. He says, as it says in Tehillim in Psalms, it says, Pischuli Sharet Tzedek, Avuvam Oideka. The David Omedech says that it's a prayer to God, open for me the gates of righteousness, I will enter and praise God. So at re, at, at, on a, a simple sense, that verse is referring to the base Amigrash, to the temple. That David said, open for us the doors of the temple and we will praise you, God. But it's also a message for every individual Jew. It's a prayer to God to open up our hearts, to help us rise above our mundane physical existence in this material world. And then we will be able to praise God in the correct way. And that is the antithesis of what the Greeks stood for. Um, the Midrash in Bereshis says that the, the state of the world before God um, created it, as we know, was the, it, it says that there were, there were four different stages. And one of the stages is Chushech al There was darkness on the earth, on the firmament. And the Midrash says that that darkness is the galus of Yavan, is the exile of Greece. Why is the exile of, of Greece called darkness? The Midrash says, Hechshichu es anem shal Yisrael. The Greeks darkened the eyes of the Jewish people. What does that mean? How do we understand that? Greece was a culture in which they glorified the existence 
of our physical being in this world. The Greeks were brilliant. The Greeks were philosophers. The Greeks were mathematicians. The Greeks were astrologers. The Greeks, Greeks intro, introduced into the world, Greek culture brought to us this great understanding of life in the physical world and glorification of the human body and of the human intellect. That was the focus of Greek culture. And they said that's all there is. There's nothing beyond our physical existence. That there's no soul. It's all about the body. The entire purpose of human existence is to maximize our pleasure and maximize our understanding of the physical world. That's where it begins and that's where it ends and there's nothing beyond that. And in fact, that's a philosophy that that's the foundation of Western thinking of Western society. It was first the Greek, then it was the Romans who, who extended that as well. And that's the view, the worldview of Western society is that we are here, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we will die. And there's nothing beyond this physical existence that we have. And that is very different. And, and in fact, there's, there's a, a negius. In other words, there's a interest in pushing that philosophy because it means that there's no moral framework that a human being has to fit into. In other words, this philosophy enables us to live how we want and do whatever we want and not have any limitations to our desires. And that's why we see the world of academia pushes this kind of philosophy and says that there's no meaning, that there's no purpose, that there's no higher power in the world because uh, human beings want to be free to do what they want and say what they want and act how they want and fulfill their sexual pleasures as they want and not to have to res- restrict themselves to fit into any moral code. And that's the very different to the Jewish view of life. The Jewish view of life is, yes, this physical world is wondrous and there's so much wisdom in the physical material world. There's so much wisdom within the intellect of a human being there's so much greatness that we could achieve on a physical plane, but that is limited. The physical world is just a vehicle to carry the soul. And the real purpose of humanity and the real mission of human beings is to live in a spiritual way, is to let our soul dominate our bodies, is to rise above the limited physical existence that we locked into in this world and achieve a spiritual connection, attach ourselves to eternity and to a higher being and to the the creator of the universe. So that's the darkness of Greece with the light of Torah and the light of the Torah view of the world. And those two philosophies clash. That's a head-on collision. There's a complete difference in understanding and in worldview between that of Greece and that of the Jewish people, that of Athens and that of Jerusalem, they diametrically oppose. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing the wonderful festival of Hanukkah, which starts tomorrow night. 
and how Antiochus the fourth would not tolerate um, the Jews observing mitzvahs, serving God. He prohibited any um, such activity, including the learning of Torah, the keeping of Shabbos, bris milah, etc., etc. And the reason why is he understood that the Jewish view was the opposite of the Greek view of life. And the Greeks glorified the physical and the material, whereas Jews saw and see the physical as just a means to filling up that physical body with a soul, with a spiritual meaning, a spiritual purpose, and connecting to God and connecting to eternity. And it's an amazing thing. Um, the, the word for Greece in Hebrew is Yavan, the Yavanim of the Greeks. And Yavan, if you can um, picture it in your mind, Yavan, if you spell it in Hebrew, you've got a Yud, which is a very small um, vertical line, and then a Vav, which is a longer vertical line, and then a Nun, which is an even longer vertical line. So Yud, Vav, Nun is a smaller line, a bigger line, a bigger line. Because in the view of the Greeks is everything is measurable. Everything is based on the science. Everything is measuring things precisely, and there's nothing more than that. The Jewish view is, yes, we believe in science, and we we certainly would not turn away from science, and we study the physical world, and we see the great wonders of the world, but that is all part of our understanding that there is a creator, understanding the wisdom of the creator. And we take those three lines, but we put a tzadi in front of them. We are tzion. So it's yavan versus tzion. The tzadi in front of those three lines is that that of the tzaddik. The tzaddik connects the heaven and earth. We see the world, we measure the world, we understand the wonders of the world, but it just enhances our connection to the creator. That's tzion. Verse Yavan. Isn't that brilliant? It's absolutely incredible how it fits into the Hebrew letters of uh, Tion of Zion and of Yavan of Greek, of the, the Greeks. And so this festival of Hanukkah is one in which is designed and specifically focused on Lahalel Ulohodos, to praise and to thank God, to see the Creator and not lose ourselves in the material physical world, but to understand that it all has a spiritual purpose that there is a moral framework that every human being has to fit into. It's not a moral framework that we make up ourselves, but one that comes from the creator of the universe, that comes from God, and we celebrate. And that's why the festival of Hanukkah is around the miracles, specifically around the miracles, because we are coming to show that the darkness of Greece, where you limit yourself in a material existence and don't see beyond the material existence, that's dark. But there, when you connect to a spiritual source, when you see that there's a all-powerful spiritual being that created the world and that controls the world and that is eternal and we have an eternal soul, a spark of the divine, and we are also eternal beings, so then that's the great light of the menorah in the world of Greek darkness. And that's the celebration of Hanukkah, to praise and to thank God for those miracles, because the miracles show that there's something beyond the physical world. How could it be that a jar that can only burn with enough olive oil for one day burns for eight days? There's no explanation apart from the supernatural element that exists in our world, that there's a higher dimension that goes beyond the physical world and the measurable world of science, 
And that's the world of spirituality. So Hanukkah is that celebration of the light of God and spirituality against the limiting darkness of Greece and the Greek world that are, uh, they darken the eyes of, of Israel. Hechshichu es enem shal Yisrael. And we, we light those lights which dissipate that darkness. So let's discuss a little bit now that we understand and have a great insight into Hanukkah and the celebration of Hanukkah and the identifying of God and praising of God for our life. We, all of our existence in this world, all of us exist only by the grace of God. The fact that our heart is beating, we're doing nothing to make that heart beat. God is ensuring that every one of us is alive and that we can breathe and that we can see and that we can hear and that we can digest food and that we have an immune system. Just the, the miracles that are going on inside the human body and outside the human body for the, the factors that are necessary for human life to exist on earth are millions and millions and they all work in tandem with each other to enable there to be human life on this planet. It's all an act of the creator. That's all part of God's creation. And so the purpose of a human being is to see that and to understand that and to appreciate that and to live a life connecting oneself to the Creator and being appreciative to the Creator for this great gift of life. And uh, who would not give everything to have just another moment of life? And each each moment of life is just such a blessing and such a gift from God. And that's... A life well lived, according to the Torah definition, is one that recognizes God and praises God every day. That's the purpose of our existence. That's not a side thing. That's not a periphery thing. That's not something that, you know, is a luxury and something that's in addition to the main focus of our lives. That is the center of our lives. The purpose of our creation is to see God and is to show appreciation to God, is to thank God. Every single day, as much as we possibly can. Obviously, in a balanced way, we have to live, we have to earn a living, we have to, you know, we have a family, and we we uh, split our time in a balanced way between all of these things. But the main focus of our being is recognizing God and thanking God. And a life in which we haven't done that is a life that has failed and has missed the point. And a life which has done that has achieved its purpose, is a great success in this world. That's how we define and measure success according to the Torah scale and the Torah framework is not how much money you've made and how much pleasure you've enjoyed in this world and how much pride and and honor you've received in this world. Those are also periphery things. The main purpose of an individual's existence is to see God and to live a life connected to God and show true appreciation to God. Isn't that a different perspective altogether of life? And that's the difference between the Greeks and the Jews. The Jewish view of life is to live with this spirituality, and the Greek view of life is there's nothing beyond the physical. And that's what we highlight on Hanukkah by lighting those candles representing the light of eternity versus the darkness of the limiting Greek view of the world. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM.
We don't have much time left, but let's quickly try and discuss uh, the mitzvahs of Hanukkah, how we fulfill our obligation on Hanukkah um, with lighting of the menorah. So we're supposed to light the menorah. Um, each household lights the menorah. The Ashkenazi custom is each male in the household lights the menorah. The females can light, husband and wife are one. And if the daughters want to light, they are able to if they would like to, but they're not obligated to. Um, but the custom is that the, the boys do, from the age of six or seven, light their own menorah. Um, the lighting of the menorah should be done uh, 20 minutes after sunset. So there are different customs, and different communities follow different customs. Some light at sunset, but most light, the Ashkenazi custom generally, is they light 20 minutes after sunset. So sunset here in Johannesburg is at 10 to 7. So from tomorrow night, we should be lighting our Hanukkah candles at 10 past 7. Um, they should burn long enough that um, a half an hour after nightfall. So they should last at least a half an hour, uh, preferably 35 minutes. They should burn at least until quarter to eight. So we light at 10 past seven, and they should burn until quarter to eight. Some people light these like, you know, these birthday cake candles. They don't burn long enough, and one shouldn't use that for the lighting. They don't fulfill the mitzvah if they do so. Um, one should rather, if you're using candles, use bigger candles, um, yeah, a great uh, uh, way to fulfill the mitzvah is with um, tea lights. Tea lights burn nice and long, and you can light it, uh, a tea light each night. So the, the, according to the strict letter of the law, one candle per night fulfills the mitzvah. Our Ashkenazi custom, we follow base Hillel, and we add a new candle each night. So we light the first night is one, tomorrow night is one, then Friday night before Shabbos, we'll light two. When do we light? We light before we light the Shabbos candles. So light your Hanukkah candles before you light your Shabbos candles. Also remember that it needs to burn a half now after sunset. It needs to, so if we're lighting tomorrow night, so candle lighting is quarter past six, we need it to burn at least until quarter to eight. So it needs to burn for an hour and a half, so there's more tomorrow night. The ideal thing to use for Hanukkah candles is oil. Oil is better than wax candles. If you don't have oil, then you can use wax candles. But oil is the better way to do the mitzvah because that's the way it was done in the temple. In the temple, they lit the menorah. The menorah was with um, cups of oil, olive oil. So we should therefore also use olive oil. You can use wicks. You can get floating wicks. You buy. I, I like to use the floating wicks. They're the easiest. You can buy them at any Jewish bookstore. They have them available, and they're not expensive. Um, so fill your jar up. Your, so you can buy a Hanukkah menorah that that has the glass um, jars. You fill them up. You don't have to fill it all the way up with oil. That will burn the whole night. You can put half water and half oil. On fr- tomorrow night, a Friday night, you'll you make make it three quarters oil. But the others can be half oil or even a quarter oil, and that's more than enough to burn for your thirty-five minutes that you need to burn. Um, so everybody should uh, try and have the uh, a menorah, and preferably it should be with olive oil. If not, you can use the candles. As I said, tea lights are fine, and they are uh, work work very well. Where do we light? So the different customs where to light. Um, we generally, um, in Israel, the, the Gemara says the best place to light is outside um, to the entrance of your homes. Um, if that's difficult to do, so then you could light, if you have a window that that from which the menorah is seen from the street, then you light at that window. Um, the the custom in Chutzlaretz, out of Israel, which we are in South Africa, is to light in the home, and there are a few reasons for that. We don't want to uh, the we don't want them to be desecrated. The candles. We don't want to antagonize anybody, 
and therefore the custom out of Israel is to light inside our homes. So if you do have a window that faces the street that can be seen from the street, not from your driveway or your garden, but actually from the street, so then you light in that window on that windowsill. Um, many of us here in Johannesburg don't have that. If we live in a home, so we're behind walls and our windows aren't seen from the street, so then you should light at the entrance to the room that you will be in at the time of lighting. So uh, it may be your lounge, it may be your dining room. At the entrance to that room is where you should light. You should light. Um, it should be on a little table that's above 30 centimeters but below a meter. We keep it low because it shows we're not lighting it for its light, but we're lighting it for the mitzvah. So it's between 30 centimeters and a meter, the height of the table. That's you, you put your menorah um, opposite the mezuzah. So the mezuzah is on the right going into that room. The menorah will then be on that low table on the left going into that room. And, um, and, uh, that's what you should light. So when we light, the first night that we light, so we say three blessings on the first night, you'll be able to find them in any Siddur that you may have, the first blessing um, that we say is the blessing of um, that Hashem commanded us to fulfill this commandment of the of the Chanukah. Second mitzvah is and the third one is the first night, and all the other nights you say the other two brachas. And so everybody should, every Jew should make an effort to light the menorah. And we should think about the great light that the menorah represents. And when we put ourselves out for Hashem, like the Chashonaim did, so great miracles result. And the Jewish people have always had the challenge of facing our adversities. As we say in Al-Hanisim, we say the blessing of Al-Hanisim in the Amidah that we dabbish out throughout Hanukkah and in benching as well throughout Hanukkah. And we say, Rabbim biyad miyatim, that many fell in the hands of the few. Jewish people are always the few, and as we see in the world around us today, we are few against many. On, in, in every country in the world, we're seeing it. Our enemies are, are rising up against us. But if we are strong and we hold on to our tradition and hold on to our faith and we are loyal servants of God and we fulfill the mitzvahs and we do what a Jew is supposed to do and we live a life of recognizing God, the halal lahodos, to praise and to thank God for all our blessings, we will overcome our adversities like we did against the Greeks two centuries ago, and we will succeed against our enemies of today. And please, God, we will continue to see miracles on behalf of the Jewish people and the defeat of our enemies speedily in our days. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful Hanukkah.